All right, welcome again. If you would like to hear the message in Spanish, um, I believe it's up on our monitors right there, the number in the process. You can listen live if you would prefer hearing this message in Spanish. It's a live translation. If you're part of King's Kids, you could also head on up and uh, into your class upstairs. So today we are, we, are, we are still going through Hebrews, but we're just going to take, we're in that part where we need to sort of crawl, <laughs> crawl through the, the actual chapters because it gets really, really deep, especially now. Um, we're in chapter four and we're going to be in verses uh, 14 to 16. And so I want you to turn there if, you're, if you can, or if you want to look up on the board, uh, I'm going to read that passage in just one minute. What I told you in the very beginning, or what we learned together from the very beginning of this book, is that this is a book of exhortation. It's a book of warning to the Hebrew people. They are the church at the present time as we're reading this. This is the, in the New Testament around A.D. 64. So this is about 34 years after Jesus uh, entered his glory. And um, this is reflecting back to the Old Testament. That's why we read these Old Testament passage, passages, as Wayne so uh, well or, or uh, greatly explained, that this is uh, part of the reason the Hebrews are having this problem is they're stuck on the old priesthood. And so this whole entire book is a book of exhortation, but it's also a, a subheading for this book could be warning, make sure you listen to our new high priest, Jesus Christ. It's no longer through the line of Aaron. And so that's why we get a lot of confusion on this topic. Now, the high priest is going to come into crystal clear view for us over the next few chapters in Hebrews. So I recommend that you read ahead, starting in chapter 5, and really through the whole rest of the book, but primarily through chapter uh, 5, 6, 7, and even 8, uh, it goes on to really explain the depth of how Jesus is our high priest. Now, you know, most of us are familiar with the concept of priest. I, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school uh, for, my, for, for eight years bounced around at different Catholic schools. And from when I was very, very young in the Catholic school, kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, we used to go to Mass, which is the, uh, the church service for the Catholic church, every single morning before church. Um, and that Mass was in Latin uh, those, those three years. And uh, it was, of course, you know, very confusing for a young guy to understand those, those, you know, so we used to just basically joke around and, you know, and, and all those things, not really knowing what the priest was. We sort of knew that the cool thing was to be asked by the priest to ring those little bells on, you know, on the side of the altar, if you're familiar with the Catholic Church, those bells get rung when, when the offering of the, of the Eucharist is being made. The priest is making an offering and so that was my experience with the priest, seeing him make this offering, seeing the guy ring the bells, and then, of course, trying to think of sins to tell the priest in the confessional that weren't that bad. <laughs> you know, generalizing and just saying sort of, you know, I, I lied, uh, you know, I took something really small, you know, and I did all this. 
But why did we do that? Because we wanted that priest to get in good with for get us in good with God, because he was apparently close to God. <clears throat> now I am no longer a Roman Catholic, and of course I there's lots of differences between the Roman Catholic Church and and Protestantism, evangelicalism especially. But the one thing that I learned as a young child in the Roman Catholic Church was the priest was a big deal. You know, he was the pastor, he was the teacher, but he was also the guy that we could go to uh, to get to know God. He was representing on our behalf mankind, okay, and also for our behalf he was representing God. And so. <clears throat> Once I learned what the scripture said, I knew that that was no longer necessary, that I could go to God on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on my own. Jesus is now my priest. He is now that intermediary. And so where the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church and even in the Anglican Church, where they get this model of priesthood from um, goes back to their different traditions and so forth and so on. Not all of them believe the same thing, but traditionally they all have some roots in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the only way the people of God could get into even close to God's presence was through the intermediary of the priest. And what we read here in the introduction, what Wayne read, was the priest preparing for the Day of Atonement. Okay? That's one day a year. That priest was to do a very specific work and go into the presence of God, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle blood on the altar for the sins of himself and for the people. And that's where they get it from. That's where the model of priest of priesthood. But just like everything else in the Old Testament, all the promises of God in the Old Testament are found fulfilled in Christ. They're yes and amen. All the promises of God, Paul says, yes and amen in Christ. They have been fulfilled. And so that's what the Hebrews are having a hard time understanding. I've been born, I've been bred, and believe me, when I came out of the Catholic Church, it was the hardest thing for me to enter into any other facility because not only was the Catholic Church part of my tradition, but it was also part of my culture as an Italian growing up. It was like, you were Catholic, okay? And in Trenton, you were Catholic, you were Democrat, okay? And that's all you cared about. You didn't care about who was running. You voted Democrat. You didn't care about where the church was. You went into a church on Sunday or Saturday night. You just had to do it. And so it was hard. It's a very strong you know, apostolic succession and very strong traditions there. Very difficult. You, know, you remember, like when we first started going, we were dating my wife and I, and she actually went to a Christian church first. And I said, now you know this, if, you're, if you were a Catholic and you came home to your Catholic family and said, I am now a Christian who's been born from above, they say you're in a cult. You're in a cult. And that's what my father always used to tell me. They're cultists. And so when my wife came home, I said, you joined a cult, didn't you? And she's like, no, I knew you were going to say that. And then God began to do his work. And it was hard for me to first go into that to break the tradition of what I was told. And that's what the Hebrews are having such a hard time with. 
is that how am I to break this tradition of all this time, my whole life, my family, my community, the Old Testament scriptures, I'm supposed to now leave that tradition? And who is this Jesus anyway? He's, he's not from the tribe of Aaron or from the tribe of Levi. He's not in the line of Aaron. This doesn't make sense. Why is Jesus called our high priest? And that's what this author, the writer here, is going to flesh out. And it's so important. Here's why this topic of, of priesthood is so important for us. And this, is, uh, and this is what we all struggle with as uh, being in the human nature is our flesh trying to consistently, since the time of Adam and Eve, consistently be like God. We want to be able to, because we feel, hey, we're good people, we're doing good things. I should be able to go right to God. I should be able to go and talk to him as well, as much as I want. He'll understand me. Now, Jesus corrected this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God, the Father, except through me. And what he's talking about there is his high priestly role. You have to go through Christ and Christ only and Christ alone in order to get to the Father. See, we need a priest in order to get to God. People try all sorts of ways to get to God, all sorts of human solutions. Their prayer life, I, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people out on the street, they say, oh, yeah, I, I'm a, I go to church once in a while, but not every week because I don't really need to go to church because I believe and I talk to God all the time. So how about that? <laughs> and I say, well, that's good that you're talking to God, but who is God? You know, well, you know, I think, you know, and then you get all these different types of, of reasons. But talking to God all the time will not get you anywhere if it's not through and on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work at the cross and his work as high priest. He's the only one that can get us to the Father because of our sin nature. And this desire to want to come to God on our own is baked into our human nature. So you're going to want to feel, you're going to want to fight that your whole entire life. And we've, again, we've tried all sorts of things to do this. Majority of religions, and we've said this before in the past, I wouldn't even say the majority. I would say all religions, and again, um, this isn't a debate of like, Christianity isn't a religion. It is, okay? It's just not religiously performed to earn work with God. But it is a religion, okay? It's a faith, all right? But to work out your faith has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with Christ and what he has done on the cross. So it's impossible to approach God without this mediator, without this qualified mediator. So, I don't know, maybe some of you have ever, uh, maybe some of you work in a, in, a, in a business or in a company where you're put into a position where you have to manage or act as an intermediary between two different groups of people within your company. And this is very, very uh, applicable to those of you that work in a company that has sales, right? Because you have sales and you have customer service. 
And see, they seem like they would just get along just fine. But I don't know this for sure, but salespeople tend to exaggerate sometimes. And so they exaggerate what the product's going to be. And then when they get to customer service, customer service is like, what did you just say we could do? We can't do that. Well, of course, they don't come right out with that because then the customer is going to cancel or do whatever else. So what happens is it goes back to management. Can you tell the sales team stop to overprom- stop overpromising? We can't do this. And so what ends up happening is, is you need a mediator to go between both parties that doesn't have anything necessarily uh, uh, to do with being unfaithful to one party or the other. They're not necessarily for one party over the other party, but they're used as the mediator to bring these two uh, seemingly opposing teams together. And that's a very difficult job, especially sales and customer service. But it needs that effective, good mediator to do that. And then that company blows up because then they're on the same page. Blows up in a good way. (laughs) Uh, They're on the same page. So the solution... For us, in our human condition of sin, is very con- it's, a, it's very uh, contradictory because God wants to have a relationship with us, but in, in essence, we are impo- it's impossible for us to have that relationship with God without this mediator that only He can provide. So we're sort of stuck in a little bit of a situation. Well. I want to talk to God, but I'm unable to talk to God because I'm not qualified because of my sin and how holy and righteous and perfect God is. So he needs somebody to stand in that gap. But this is God. Who can do it? Who can do it? This priest that has to represent both sides can only be performed by one single human being. And that is Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. He retains the confidence of both sides. Fully. We can go to Jesus fully with full confidence that he is the one. Now, I just realized something. Did I forget to read the scripture passage? How about how come nobody called me out on that besides Ray back there? He, he wants us to come with full confidence. And that's what it says here in verse 16. It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So that way we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So he can give us that confidence. Now, does this sound familiar? Throughout this whole book so far, we've been told what? Hold fast. Hold fast. Stay, hold on to that assurance that you have. Stand firm. Now he's telling us again the same thing. But this time it's let us draw near with confidence into that place of God's presence because of who Jesus is. And that's what I want to go to now. Who, in fact, is Jesus to be able to stand in the gap for us? So verse 14 says, therefore... Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest. Here's the the answer. We do not have a high priest who cannot 
sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then therefore let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. So here we see he is the son of God. In verse 14, he passed through the heavens and he can sympathize with us in order to pay for our sin and our weaknesses. He could sympathize with it. He's a human being. We got him on our side there, but he's also God on the other side. But what does it mean that Jesus sympathized with us? Because this is an important thing in order to qualify him to be our representative. Does that mean Jesus sympathized with our weaknesses, every single weakness that every single person in, in all the world through all time has had? To the minor, little, tiny, little weaknesses? You know, like I, my foot was weak. Did Jesus know what it was like to have a, a weak foot? You know, my, this was weak. My weakness of sickness. My weakness of, um, you know, inability to do this or that. Is that what that means? Well, sympathy understands. That's what sympathy does. It understands how one feels. And why? Because they have the same feeling. So if you were on the boat, this we went out on a cruise ship, or a, a, not a cruise ship, but a, a fishing boat out into the ocean, and you started to get seasick, it actually would be me getting seasick. I started to get seasick. And all of a sudden, you come over to me and say, Pat, you okay, buddy? You're going you're gonna to be okay. Don't, don't worry. And then you start having seasickness and throwing up alongside of me. You have sympathy. <laughs> you not only understand how I feel, but you're feeling the same way. Empathy is, the dif- is different. Empathy understands, but doesn't feel that way. Like you run, uh, you know, you don't obey a traffic sign. You get pulled over. You get a ticket. The police officer has empathy for you, but not the same feeling. They're not having to pay that ticket. You are. So he could feel that way, but yet not understand. Okay, just like if you're a prison guard, you could be in a prison. You could be working in a prison. You understand prison life. You do. You can be empathetic with it. And at the same time, you can experience that same feeling yet without actually committing a crime and being sentenced because you're in the jails all day. That's the type of feeling that Jesus had with us. He sympathized with us and felt the human condition. Jesus knows your condition right now. Whatever your mindset is, whatever heart, uh, heart issue you have, whatever heartbrokenness you have, Jesus understands that condition. He was in the human condition. Those things are part of the human condition. But Jesus never sinned. He understands our condition and yet was without sin. See, when we get down in the dumps, sometimes what, what do we do? We go out and sin to help ourselves feel better so we don't feel, about the, feel the dumps anymore. We have relationship problems. You know, we have different issues. Sometimes what do we do? We end up taking the wrong steps, medicating ourselves. Well, whatever it is. You know, maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. 
Maybe it's going out with your friends, partying. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's something totally different, but you know it's not what God would be wanting you to do. And so God is telling us that I understand how you feel, and therefore I can help you. And I also qualify now, because I understand how you feel, to stand in your gap with God, to stand in the gap for you, because I'm a human now, and I understand how you feel, I sympathize with you, and you're a human that is helpless before God. But I, Jesus says, am without sin. I've never sinned once. I filled all the craziness of the human life, but I was completely focused on God. Jesus sympathized with us, and the Father sees that because of his ultimate justice. He's not just going to send somebody down to just with some righteous blood from the throne to cover our sins, because that could have happened too. He could have did it many, many different ways, but because God's perfectly, orderly, just, holy, and he's fully loved and all these things, he can only do that which is right. So it says that he was tempted, but that's a confusing word. I like the translation tested better. Because Jesus was tempted, it says here, in all things as we are. So he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and he was tempted as all things as we are. Does that mean Jesus went around like, you know, looking at women and being, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? You know, stay pure for the next, you know, four years, I can't do it, you know. Man, I really want to go out and party, but I can't. I'm God. You know, it's not going to work. He was tested. Okay. John Owen, he has a really good pass, a passage of this in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, tempted in the scriptures or tested is applied to people who have a sinful nature. Tempted. Because temptation, he says, is the moral evil in the temptation that causes us to sin. And it comes when one acts according to their nature from the weakness and the sin, that which is tempting them. I'm sorry, the weakness, or the weakness of their flesh to the sin that is tempting them. Jesus didn't have this. People are tempted to sin by sin, to habitual sin, to outward and then indwelling sin. All the sin Jesus was tempted from without, he resisted perfectly and had, it had no effect on him. So this doesn't mean that Jesus was tempted by every means possible. No, it means that he was tempted as it relates to our human condition of the misery of sin, of being in a sinful world, yet again, the only one who did not sin. And this is, this is the focus of Jesus is not him just walking around being perfectly sinless so I could just get to the cross without sinning. You know, wake me up tomorrow morning, Peter, and just put the blinders on, you know, the blinkers like the horses have here, you know. And so I can't see anything. I got to get to the cross. I can't sin. Don't say that. It's going to make me sin, right? That's not how Jesus worked. It was impossible technically for him to sin, but yet he humbled himself to the point of emptying himself, so he was fully reliant on the Father, and the Father got him through all of these things without anything. So I like this, this, this one little saying here. It says, 
he is as we are, so therefore he can help us. He is as we are. He's a man, fully man. He isn't as we are, so therefore he can help us too. He isn't a sinful man. He never sinned once, and he isn't what we are, as in he is God. You see, the picture here is Jesus having and possessing something that's able. It's not just his Godhead. It's not just his God, you know, divine nature. He's part of the triune Godhead. That's obviously a big part of it. But what it is, it's his blood. Okay, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses our sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So all the Old Testament sacrifices, every single one of them, not one of them ever was able to forgive a sin, to be covered, to be able to, I'm sorry, to potent enough to be able to wash and cleanse away the sin of the people. What did he do? He created a forbearance for the Old Testament folks. So what, what that means is they put the payment on the back end of the, of, of, of the plan, right? You miss a payment? Hey, can you put that on the back end? Yeah, no problem. And that's what God did with all the debt that they owed him. He took it and put it here in Jesus' land when he would come and pay for it at the cross. So those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the cross. They temporarily covered sin to allow the people to be there through that high priest, and yet they weren't able to take away sin. But Jesus' blood is divine it's eternal. The power and the uh, uh, efficiency of his blood is, is infinite. Whereas our blood, it could never cover sins. So we would be perpetually, eternally trying to pay that debt separated from God and never to be able to do it with our own blood. That's why hell is eternal. It's not eternal because God says, you're, I want to really, really punish you bad. Come on, can't God just give us like a couple years in hell? How about even a lifetime? Why eternally? It's not because God's going to try to be mean to you. It's because that's how long it will take you to pay your sins with your own blood. In other words, you can't. Eternally, you could try. It's never going to work. So you're separated, invalid, not valid funds to make this transaction, okay? It's infinite. It's infinite. What does it mean that Jesus passed through the heavens? It says here, therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What does that mean? Where does that make you think of? The high priest going in, passing through the veil, because ultimately, that's all that heaven is, is a veil. We can't see heaven behind the veil. We can't see heaven because of a veil over our eyes. Heaven isn't up there in some far distant land. It's not up. Okay? Jesus' return, his parousia is a revealing. It's a stage curtain going like this. And now we can be... Heaven runs right alongside of earth. Of, of the physical realm, I'm sorry. Heaven runs right alongside of the physical realm. So when Jesus ascended... He went into the heavens. He passed through the heavens. We see this uh, where Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 too, being taken up to the third heaven in a vision. Or maybe he said physically. He doesn't know. 
Solomon built the temple. He declared the heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain God. 1 Kings 8.27. So the, the, what we're looking at here is Jesus went through the veil like he did in the Old Testament to get into the Holy of Holies. But now he went through the veil into the heavens. Now, when we think of heavens and heaven, we automatically think, oh, that's where God is. And that's true. But there are layers to heaven, just like there are layers to the temple to get into the Holy of Holies. Jesus flew through the layers, not physically, but went through the layers and got into that, that right to the place of God's heart and stands there one and fully united with the Father. And we do the same thing. We pass through that veil. And, you know, we see in 1 Peter 3.19, a lot of people, I believe, get this confused because it says, Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, the heavens, okay, when he goes through the heavens, it doesn't mean that the heavens are all good. That's the spiritual realm. There's evil there. There is a hierarchy of evil there. There is a hierarchy of spiritual wickedness. And, and, and principalities and powers. And so Jesus went through all that untouched. Whereas anybody else would have been wiped out because of that evil. He went beyond that. And he went into God's dwelling place. And at the very, very, very ultimate, ultimate layer is there the heart of God. Because he, as the picture of the temple shows us, he is at the center of that. He is at the very, very center. So Jesus is at the, he went through the heavens and he's sitting in the supreme spot in the Holy of Holies with God to sit and rule with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> heavens again, not to be made, uh, not to think of anything other than the play, getting to the place of where Jesus is went to be with the Father. So, so try not to get confused with going to heaven, necessarily. He didn't go there as well, too. He didn't go there to rest, as, it, right, as we would think of it, to go sleep. Hey, my work is done. He went there and what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Anytime you see a, sit, somebody sitting on a throne, that means they are taking rule over a kingdom. Anytime you see someone sitting on God's throne, it could only be one person, God himself. And Jesus is there going to rule on the throne with God, but more importantly, to intercede for you, to be that mediator. Now, when you go and you stand before the throne, which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you're going to confess to him one day. I could say that boldly because I believe the scriptures are absolutely true. And that's what it says. Every word of it. You are going to have to go and bow down to the knee, bow on the knee and say, well, you are Lord. You are all. You are God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. Well, not me. I'm not going to do that. Okay. It's not going to happen. But you're, you're going to be, you may not think you're going to do that, but that's what's going to happen. It's like, again, the gravity analogy. Go up on the building. You could think that you can fly. You could think it, believe it. You could have all sorts of paperwork on it. 
You could know for sure, but very quickly you're going to find out that doesn't work if you jump. And that's what's going to happen with every person that doesn't know Christ. They've heard him, they know about it, they've rejected it, and they can't get through into God's presence because they're not able to relate and they've never known the high priest, Jesus Christ. And so he is there interceding, continuing his rule through his people. But we are all going to have to face him. What will you say that day that you did with Jesus, the high priest? Now, the good news is that in this last verse of the passage, therefore, watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And I know, and I often do this too, I like to use this to encourage people and say, listen, you need to, you need to go to the throne of grace. It's, it's, he's telling us to draw near, whereas the Old Testament priests would thrash you if you drew near. He would rip his shirt and have you stoned if you drew near. So Hebrews like, well, wait, so you're telling me that Aaron's line would have stoned me for drawing near, but now I can simply draw near to God? But where's the temple? What I mean, he's not in the temple. He's Jesus. How do I do that? How do I draw near? Will you draw near to God in Christ? In Christ, you draw near to him through faith. But watch this. I use this and I say, you know, you need to enter into the throne of grace. You can go anytime into God. So you could ask him for anything. You could praise him. You can go in. But that's not really what this is saying here. He's telling these Hebrews, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where Jesus is that I've been telling you about. Don't be afraid. You can draw near. He's not saying you could draw near and come out like Jesus is the wizard of Oz. Hey, just go. And just go up and, you know, knock and you'll hear his voice. Ask him whatever he wants and he'll give it to you. Need a brain? You go to him. Need a heart? You go to him. I don't forget what the other one was. But you go, you go to him and then you leave. No, the throne of grace, he's inviting them to come near. Because you're far now. You're believing in this old covenant. You're believing the wrong things about God. So now, now that you know it's all grace, and now that you know it's all about mercy, and now that you know Jesus is fully qualified, And now that you know that he is the one that's going to give you carte blanche, full pass entrance into the throne, enter in. Why would you ever want to leave? That's what he's telling us. Enter in. Jesus didn't say, I am the vine, you are the branches. As a branch, when you need me, just come and plug in. And then, you know, go back and be a branch. Laying on the ground, drying out. No, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Go to the throne of grace and know that you are there as a Christian, covered by his blood. You can go in the time of need, yes. If you've drawn back and you fall back and you've forgotten this, then it's time to start practicing this again and going before the throne of grace, not the throne of criticism, not the throne of punishment. Not the throne of, hey, why'd you do this again, John? Not that throne. The throne of grace. Unmerited favor. Grace is a result of his mercy. His mercy is a result of his grace. Not getting what you deserve. 
and getting what you don't deserve, coming in to that time. But it's only when we draw near to Jesus. What's stopping you from drawing near to Jesus right now by his grace? What's stopping you from taking this free gift that he's handing you by believing in him? A grace where it's, it's a promising grace. It's an active grace that's going to keep working in you and make you cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and make you to love, love God more and more and make you to receive God's love more and more and more. This is where we want to be, people, as Christians. We want to be cognitively and deliberately in the throne room of God, standing in his grace, which is covered by the blood of the mercy seat that was spilled from Jesus. Totally safe. Totally, totally should enter in without fear. Now, again, how do I recommend we do this? Remember the warning from last week. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Go to the word of God. Make the word of God something that is a part of your life. You go to it for all things. It's not this religious like, oh, I got to go to God's word for all things. I'm doing everything wrong here. How am I supposed to do this? No, it's as you walk, Jesus is walking along with you. He will lead you through what you need to know. It's not going to the word of God to try to realize how bad you are. It's this is our fuel. This is our changing agent, the word of God. Prayer. I could go through dozens of promises about prayer. That if you seek the Lord hard, he is gonna, you're going to find him. Don't just wait for God. and Just be like, oh, there's context where you should wait on the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in terms of this relationship of entering into his grace, it's there now. There's no requirements other than belief in in Jesus Christ in the covering of his blood. So draw near with prayer, draw near with the word, but realize that you have the one, the main advocate, the only one that could stand in the place next to you personally. He would have came for you alone to save you. To cover your blood alone. That's how much he loves you. That's his nature. Why do we run from such an amazing, loving, gracious God? Because of our sin. What's it going to do to me? How's it going to change me? Trust him. He knows you. He made you. You don't want to live your whole life living somebody else's life that you created. Live the life that God intended for you through Christ. I'll finish with this. George Whitfield said, I love this. He said in one of his letters, and I think this encapsulates everything that I was just saying about, uh, you know, coming into this throne room. He said, let us make much of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make much of Jesus. Let's make much of him. Not just like, you know, chips and dip. Yeah, give me a little Jesus. Yeah, good. All right, back over here. Do this. No, like, let's make much of Christ in our life, what he did, who he is. We're talking about him. We're trying to live for him. We're, we're trying to make much of him. That's what the charge, I believe, through this passage is to all of us. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your faithful high priest, Lord. Jesus was faithful, Lord, where everyone else on this planet from the beginning to the end has failed. Lord, Jesus is uh, just such an amazing sign of your love. I pray here that 
for anyone that doesn't know who you are, doesn't know your love, doesn't know the safety of being in your presence as it relates to the evil of this world and the pattern of this world, I pray that you would give them that love, you would open their heart, and you would wash them with the regeneration of the Word and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.